again to the letter of 1 Timothy, almost to the end of the, the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you're using one of these Bibles from the pews, that's page 992. Just a reminder about the background. The Apostle Paul had gone to the city of Ephesus some uh, eight or so years before this was written. And he's writing now to Timothy, who is the pastor in the city of Ephesus. Paul had planted the church there and had arisen amidst great turmoil, a riot that had taken place, driven primarily by the fact that the merchants were losing money, the silversmiths were losing money, with their trade of the idols to Diana and the temple that was there, one of the ancient wonders in the world at that time, architectural wonders. If you've ever looked in a dictionary or Bible dictionary and seen a picture of the goddess Diana or Artemis, it's really a grotesque figure. But they made a lot of money selling these at the time, and so the Apostle Paul comes into Ephesus, God blesses the ministry, many people are converted, and it has a financial impact on the city. No longer are people buying the uh, idols. So a riot takes place. The Roman soldiers there basically save uh, Paul's life. He stays three years in Ephesus, and he sees the church established. He stays there long enough not only to see many people converted, but to develop men into elders and shepherds in the church. He foretells a time that false teaching will arise within the church. Now that has happened. And so years later, he's writing back to Timothy, who is a pastor in the previous chapters, chapters 1 to the earlier part of chapter 4. He's, he's telling Timothy, this, this young pastor, how to set things in order, qualifications for elders and deacons, uh, the, the importance of preaching, the importance of Timothy's life. He's talked to him about dealing straight on with false teaching, with truth. And now as we come to the end of chapter 4, he's going to address some comments to Timothy's personal character and what it needs to be there. Beginning in verse 11, hear God's word. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So ends the reading of God's word. Later in the service, we are going to do what is prescribed here, and that is the commissioning and the laying on of hands for ordination and installation of new church officers. In God's providence, this was the passage that ended up on this Sunday. And so that's why I would like to continue. The next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at passages dealing with the birth of Christ into the world. Let's just look for a few moments, before time is brief, before we come to the ordination service. Uh, let's look at some of the just phrases here. He says, command and teach these things. Uh, it's the word command means to give orders, to direct. It's a reminder that, that Timothy, as a teaching elder, as a preacher of God's word there in that local church, has spiritual authority. 
That authority does not rest with him as a man, but with God's word. And so it is his responsibility to teach, even to command, in God's name, the congregation to trust and obey the doctrine he has received from the apostles. Why do you think Paul needed to remind Timothy of this, of his God-given authority? Well, it could be that Timothy was timid and somewhat fearful of people. We know that's addressed in another part of the letter. But whether he was timid or not, he was still younger. And that can be a disadvantage in being a pastor because it can undermine him with some of the older people that might have just dismissed what he said as, well, you're just a young man. When you get a few years behind you, you'll see things differently. Or he might have been intimidated himself. In those days, there were two classes of grown adults, young men and older men. There was no middle age like we call it today. There was... Uh, you were a young man until you were 40 years old. And then from 40 years and up, you were considered an elder. And so in that culture, those two groups had their own social associations. They had their own events. They had their own athletic facilities. Counts, sounds kind of like today, doesn't it? But it was true then. The Timothy belonged to the younger group because at this time, best we know, he was in his 30s, probably in his younger 30s. And he needed wisdom beyond his years. He had not been called by the church. He had been put there by the Apostle Paul. And he needed a lot of wisdom. Have you ever been in a situation that demanded wisdom that was far beyond your years? I have. Uh, the, the chief one being when I became pastor here. I was in my 30s. Humanly speaking, I should probably not have been a candidate for the pastorate here. What I mean by that is... I had never pastored a church before. I'd been a campus minister, but that is very different. Uh, I had been on staff here. Sometimes that is seen very much as uh, a reason not to call a, a person as a pastor. I had never preached on a regular basis, week in and week out. Uh, I, had, I had dealt a little bit with some of the issues, but not a lot. And so for the first couple of years... Uh, I gain new meaning to deer in the headlights every day. When you're faced every day with your weaknesses and situations that are just beyond you, and my only uh, uh, help, it seemed like, was calling older pastors on the telephone, men I respected, and saying, this situation, this situation, how do you handle this, what do you do here? And uh, now I'm still as incompetent, I just don't care as much now. <laughs> But there, there comes a time you get older, but that was intimidating uh, for me. And it's interesting here that he writes to him not only for Timothy to read this, but since this letter was to be read in the church, he wanted them to hear it. He wanted everyone uh, to hear this about the importance not to look down on Timothy because of his age. So how does a young minister gain the respect of those who are older? Well, not by claiming authority, not by throwing his weight around, Paul goes on and says, you must set an example. You must set the believers an example. And he begins by saying with speech. His speech is to be example. It's to be seasoned with grace. He's to be able to converse about spiritual things. He is to tell the truth. We know from 1 Timothy 6, he's not to be argumentative. He's not to use his speech to tear others down. Even if he rebukes others, it should be with affection and kindness. 
All of us here, I assume, know that, that we can ruin good intentions with our speech. We can have the greatest intentions, but what the, the way we say it or what we say can ruin that. And for a young, younger person, I would urge you the best tool in communication at a young age is just learn to listen. Learn to ask good questions and then just keep your mouth shut and listen and try and gain some wisdom from those older. Wayne Herring has preached here many times. Wayne was one of my seminary professors and a longtime friend then and now. I remember him saying that when he first became a pastor, he was a, a young man in Birmingham. And he said that he was very outspoken, very opinionated, very had deep convictions. And after a presbytery meeting, that's where you have representatives from all the churches in that area came together. Wayne had stood on the floor of presbytery before all the men and had made some remarks about something. And he told me an older gentleman in the presbytery after the meeting was over came up to him and said, You know, young man, when you stand up and speak, there's a lot of heat, but very little light. And Wayne said, that was true. A lot of heat, but no light. So we need to learn from others. Godly speech is, is to be part of what's mentioned next, his conduct, his lifestyle. A minister's life ought to say, this is God's man all the time, everywhere, at home, at the church, in the grocery store, driving on the interstate, on the sports field, wherever it is. Because we all know that if our example contradicts our words, our example tends to speak much louder. It says he should set an example in love. Timothy, pastors today, he's to keep the, the great commandments, loving God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as himself. He should have a passionate concern for the lost. He is to have a special place in his heart for the people of God placed under his spiritual care. He shares in their joys. He shares in their sorrows. If we only say the right words and tell people to live the right way, but we lack love, that is nothing but legalism. That is a legalistic view of God's expectations. But love will make the message ring true. You can tell. You can tell. If I or any other person steps in the pulpit and we're preaching because we're angry at somebody or we're trying to get back, as somebody, or we're beating ourselves up, or whatever it may be, you, you, I assume you have the maturity to have a sense of what, you know when that's going on. I attended Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. That's when it was only in Jackson, Mississippi, before having several campuses. It was not uncommon in, in that area of the country for many churches in that part of Mississippi and even over into Alabama and into Louisiana, they needed pastors. They needed preachers, I should say, not pastors. They wanted preachers to come to their little country churches and preach on Sunday. And they either didn't have the resources or did not want a pastor on site, so they would call the seminary and say, would you send us a student to preach? So those of us willing, some of us here did that. We went to places like Cold Water, Mississippi, and Water Valley, Mississippi, and Hot Coffee, Mississippi. I'm not making this up. Oldenburg, sometimes referred to as Old and Dead. And all these places we'd go, at Rolling Fork, Mississippi. They're all coming back to me now. My poor wife heard Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 preach more times than any human should ever be forced to listen to. And according to the seminary, and I guess it was a myth, there was a story told 
of a church that needed a preacher. So they called and a preacher, well, a young preacher went out and preached on, his subject that day was on hell, and he preached about hell. The next Sunday, they had a different preacher that came from the seminary, and he preached about hell from the same passage of Scripture, not knowing that the other fellow had done the same the week before. The next week, the church contacted the seminary and said, we would like the second student to come and be our regular preacher. We'd like for him to come every week. Well, when the, when the faculty advisor saw that they had both preached on the same thing, same passage, they said, why did you pick the second student? And, and the person on the phone said, because when he preached about hell, he preached as though he did not want us to go there. <laughs> minister must have love. With tender love, he goes on and says, there must be faith to believe God, to believe in the power of God to save sinners. He has faith in God. He lives and studies and teaches and preaches by faith. Last but not least, he must set an example of purity from all indication. He's talking about sexual behavior there. Regardless of the culture, it doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter what times we live in, the church must insist on the necessity of chastity, of faithfulness to his marriage partner. We know, which I mean by wife. I guess I have to define that these days. Faithfulness to his wife. The people of God must pray for the purity of the minister. I've had the privilege the past number of years to attend John Piper's Pastors Conference, the Desiring God Ministries Pastors Conference in Minneapolis in February when nobody else will go there. <laughs> and last year, Barbara was able to go with me. There are about 2,000 pastors from all around the country and around the world that gather and during that conference, that three-day conference, there, there are main speakers. And John Piper will deliver one message that all of these are on the Internet. It's a biographical message. And it's 75 minutes long. Last year, it was on Robert Murray McShane. Now, some of you know a lot about that name. Some of you don't know who I'm talking about. He was a pastor in Scotland who died before he was 30. But his ministry still has influence today in some of his writings or writings about him and the mark that he made in just the very few years that God gave him of service on earth. Here was this young man, and one of the quotes from McShane was, my people's, talking about his congregation, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. So he talks about the minister's life, which has application for all of us. Then he has, talks about biblical doctrine in verses 13 and following. He says, until I come, Paul's saying that, he's planning to come visit, but until I do, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to preaching. The implication is Paul's going to come, but until that happens, Timothy, you need to be about this work and give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Teaching the Bible begins by reading the Bible. And the reference here is the reading of Scripture in the corporate gathering, the assembly, the worship service of the believers. Now, it was necessary in the early church because they were very scarce when it came to books and parchments. For many Christians, public worship was the only opportunity that they had to hear the Word of God. So you can see why that was given a very high priority. In the second century, one of the church fathers, Justin Martyr, said this, describing the reading of Scripture in the worship service. He said, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. 
Then, when the reader has ceased, the person presiding verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of those good things. So we see in the early church, reading of the Scripture was prominent. It should be still today. We live in a time, if you do family devotions, and I hope you do, if you have small children at home or if, or if you, with your roommates, if you're not married, if there are times to have devotions, Barbara and I are trying to have at least a couple of nights a week, the, the Tuesday nights and usually one other night when we eat supper together at home when there's no meetings or anything. I take Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And we'll pick the date and just read that. It begins with a scripture reading, and then it's got, if you've used that devotional guide, it's got then one page of, of exhortations about that, that scripture. Uh, if, if you, I would urge you to do that. The, the number of resources are just countless today that you can buy, books and, and other tools, that, depending on the, the age group of the children or if they're teenagers and so forth. But whatever you do, read scripture. That should be the foundational point. And do not underestimate the impact that that can have. Don't read it as an end in itself, but to know God, to know him, to know about him. It's not only to be read, we find here, it's to be explained. And he is to teach. He's to exhort with the scripture and he is to instruct. Uh, there's to be explanation but preaching is not just instruction, it's also exhortation to action. It's not just exhortation to action, there's also instruction. And then he goes on in the next few verses and talks about how these things were communicated to Timothy. He says in verse 14, through the laying on of hands. 14 says, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What was this laying on of hands? Well, we refer to this as ordination or setting apart. And that is defined as the authoritative admission of one duly called to an office in the church of God accompanied with prayer and the laying on of hands. There's nothing magical about the laying on of hands, as you will see in just a few moments with these men that are coming to be ordained. Uh, the practice goes back to the uh, practice of blessings in the Old Testament, we know that when Moses commissioned his successor Joshua, Deuteronomy 3 tells us that Moses laid, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 34 tells us Moses laid his hands on him. Later in Judaism, there developed a rite in which the teacher would pass on his authority to his students at the end of the time by placing his hands on their heads. So it's natural that in the early church, when the first missionaries and ministers were commissioned, it was through the laying on of hands. We will do such in just a few moments. But last of all, he talks about the church's salvation in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on, the, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. What does that mean? That can look, that can look um, complicated. What does it mean, save yourself? Well, the word save can mean like to preserve. You save some leftovers after a meal to eat later. But here it seems to mean, seems to point to the fact that ministers play a critical part in people's salvation. Salvation comes by faith in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. But Romans tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it comes from the preaching of the gospel, the sound preaching of the gospel. A number of... Uh, 
A while back, we used to teach a, uh, have a Bible study at our house for young adults. They were younger than 30, and I mean, 39 and below. And there was a, uh, a woman that came, and she came early, and, and I met her at the door, and I was vaguely familiar. We had never met. I'd seen her picture uh, around one of the publications at the church, and uh, we began to talk just to get to know her. No one else was there yet, and we were sitting in the living room, and and uh, I said, how do you know to come here? She said, well, God's just really been at work in my life over the past few weeks. And uh, it all started one Sunday morning. I said, what happened? She said, well, I went, and there was, the sermon was on such and such. And God just really, he has really had an impact on me. And I said, <laughs> she, I, she couldn't remember who preached, but I said, what was the date? <laughs> and she told me, I said, oh, that was me. You know, I mean, I'll... One of those, one of those every five years is enough just to keep you going, you know. So I didn't say that to her, but I was encouraged by that. The preaching of God's word. You would think after all this time, a couple of thousand years, that God would find a little more something on the edge to communication. I mean, with all that we have today, the styles of communication and forms of communication. And yet God still delivers his truth to a man. And, and that is through the, the foolishness of preaching. My life has been heavily impacted by preaching. I can remember sitting under the preaching of God's word at different times. I cannot tell you what the person preached on. But I remember God working in my life through it. There is debate within our circles about dismissing children for a lesson during the worship service. It's a simple debate, and that is, should they not be included so that they learn to worship and sit quietly and to begin to listen and adhere to the preaching of God's Word? The other side, like by Jay Adams, who's no slouch on this, said, if you do that continually, if they cannot understand, you're teaching the person to tune it out. So what you're training them to do is not to pay attention. So he would say, let's have a lesson. And if that's on their level, it's not children's church. It's a lesson, hopefully, that they would be studying the Bible just like we're studying the Bible, but at their level. But I would be the first to say, when your children can listen, and you have to determine that age, or when you can listen with your children in here with you, then do not, do not neglect the preaching of the Word as to how God may act how God may act and when on that child's heart. The scary thing about, that's scary, I can't think of a better word, about allowing your youngsters, your teenagers, who are still under your authority in every other area of life, to miss the preaching of God's word, you don't know when God may touch their heart. You don't know. The wind blows where it wishes. And it might be uh, on a certain night when you have... No, no expectation. And you may sit there and not even feel like, you say, I hardly could even pay attention to what was being said. And God may turn that, that youngster's life upside down or, or someone else. John Calvin put it this way. It is indeed true that it is God alone who saves, and not even the smallest part of his glory can rightly be transferred to men. But God's glory is in no way diminished by his using the labor of men and bestowing salvation. This ministry is itself entirely God's work. 
For it is he who makes men good pastors and leads them by his spirit and blesses their work so that it may not be in vain. All right, in just a moment, we're going to shift to the installation, but let me give you three applications. One, pray for us as a church to have godly, spirit-filled officers and pastors for your own sake. Second, pray for these men who serve as elders and deacons. You've got their names. You'll see them up here in a moment. And last, pray this paragraph, 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. I would ask you to take this paragraph this week and pray it for me and the other pastors especially. For John, for Eric, for Greg. And you don't know what that would mean. If we knew that even if a hundred people, if only a hundred of you took this and know that you were praying, uh, Father, bless Chip and John and, and Greg and and Eric, and may they set an example in speech and conduct and faith and love and purity. May they devote themselves to the pub. You get the picture like that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. It is your church. Men did not dream it up. It's not a company. It's not a business. It's an organism. It's a living organism, part of the body of Christ here on earth. May ours be centered around your word. May it be a community that we rely on your grace and your mercy day by day, moment by moment. In Christ's name, amen.